Mr. President, let me be very honest and tell you that there is much in this bill, and we have not yet seen the printout yet, uh, that I am concerned about. I am especially concerned uh, that the administration will be able to expend $500 billion uh, in virtually any way they want, any corporation they want, uh, with virtually no strings attached. Uh, the American people, at a time of massive income and wealth inequality, do not want more corporate welfare, uh, and they do not want policies which will allow corporations, in some cases, to receive loans or grants and then do stock buybacks to enrich their stockholders, uh, provide dividends, or, or maybe raise the compensation benefits of their already wealthy CEOs. What the American people want right now is to us, for us to use our taxpayer dollar in every way that we can to protect the working families of this country, to protect the middle class, to protect the 50 percent of our people who are living paycheck to paycheck. And as we speak tonight, half of our people in this country, in the richest country in the history of the world, are living paycheck to paycheck. And they wake up in the morning and they're saying, you know what, I can barely make it on the paycheck that I got because I'm making 12, 13, 14 bucks an hour, and now that paycheck has stopped. How am I going to pay my rent? How am I going to put food on the table for my kids? How am I going to make sure that the lights remain on? How am I going to pay my student debt? How am I going to pay my credit card debt? Somebody in the family gets sick. How am I going to pay that? Now, this bill uh, has been worked on extensively in the last few days. There are elements in it that, in my view, are positive. Don't go far enough by any means. Uh, but one of the things this bill does do is provide the largest expansion of unemployment benefits in history, expending about $250 billion of federal funds. And what it does, importantly, the bill understands that for all kinds of absurd reasons having to do with Republican attacks on workers for many years, fewer than 50 percent of American workers today are eligible for unemployment benefits. What this bill does is says, rightly so, that in the midst of this terrible economic crisis where some people, nobody knows, where some economists are estimating that by June, the end of next quarter, unemployment could be 20 or 30 percent. What this bill does say is that whether or not you are eligible for unemployment today, you're going to get unemployment compensation. And that means many of the gig workers, people who drive Uber cars, many of the waitresses and waiters who make starvation minimum wages, many so-called independent contractors, they will be eligible for the extended unemployment benefit. And that is exactly the right thing. And the other thing that this bill does, which is right, is it says, okay, we are in the midst of a horrific crisis, unprecedented in modern American history. So not only are you going to get your regular unemployment benefits, we're going to add another $600 a week to it. And now I find that some of my Republican colleagues are very distressed. They're very upset. But somebody who's making 10, 12 bucks an hour 
might end up with a paycheck for four months more than they received last week. Oh my God, the universe is collapsing. Imagine that. Somebody who's making 12 bucks an hour, now like the rest of us, faces an unprecedented economic crisis with the 600 bucks on top of their normal, their regular unemployment check, might be making a few bucks more for four months. Oh my word, will the universe survive? How absurd and wrong is that? What kind of value system is that? Meanwhile, these very same folks had no problem a couple of years ago voting for a trillion dollars in tax breaks for billionaires and large profitable corporations. Not a problem. But when it comes to low-income workers in the midst of a terrible crisis, maybe some of them earning or having more money than they previously made. Oh, my word, we got to strip that out. Got to, we got to tell those poor people that no matter what, and by the way, when this bill, when the McConnell bill first came up, unbelievably, and I know many Republicans objected to this, they were saying that, well, we want to give a, whatever it was, 1000 or 1200 bucks, but poor people should get less. You see, because poor people are down here, they don't deserve, they don't eat, they don't pay rent, they don't go to the doctor, they're somehow inferior because they're poor, we're going to give them less. Well, that was addressed. Now everybody is going to get the $1,200, but some of my Republican friends still have not given up on the need to punish the poor and working people. You haven't raised the minimum wage in 10 years. Minimum wage should be at least 15 bucks an hour. You haven't done that. You've cut program after program after program, and now horror of horrors, for four months, workers might be earning a few bucks more than they otherwise went. Well, needless to say, this is an amendment that is coming up. I don't think it's going to go very far. And if it does go far, I will introduce an amendment to deal with the corporate welfare, the $500 billion in corporate welfare, which is, to me, a very serious problem. But I do not think they're going to get the 60 votes, and that will be the end of it. Mr. President, this bill uh, also includes uh, some $250 billion in one-time checks of $1,200 for adults and $500 for kids. Now, I have a couple of concerns there. Number one, I have believed that in the midst of this unprecedented crisis, uh, that we should make this a monthly benefit, not a one-time benefit. And depending on what happens, and I expect very much that this Congress will be reconvening because I think this coronavirus three, the bill we're on right now, is going to be uh, superseded by a coronavirus four. Because my strong guess is this does not go far enough. But the bill does include uh, a $1,200 check for adults, $500 for kids that will help in the short term. We've got to do a lot better than that. Uh, as many of you know, uh, in countries around the world, UK, uh, Denmark, other countries, the approach that they are taking, which makes sense to me, is to basically say to employers, if you keep your workers on the job, even if they're not working right now, we will pay, in the UK case, 80% of their uh, salary, other countries a bit higher. I think that is the direction we should have gone. This is a little, little bit more convoluted. Uh, but what we do do here is give $367 billion in loans to small businesses 
and those loans could be forgiven if those small businesses don't lay off workers. And I think for a variety of reasons, that is exactly uh, the right thing to do. The goal right now is to stabilize the economy by telling workers that they will have their jobs when they come back, when this thing is over, and that in the meantime, they will have all or most of their income. That is my preferred uh, approach. Uh, this bill provides $150 billion to states and cities. And I can tell you that in Vermont, and I'm sure in every other state in this country, uh, states and cities are hurting because we all know there has been a major decline in tax revenue. And that is uh, uh, an important thing to do because, by the way, in the midst of this crisis, a lot of the responsibility is going to fall on local and state government. And one of the concerns of many that I have about this bill is that in the best of times, this bill requires an enormous amount of work by the federal, state, and local governments. How do you get all these unemployment checks out? How do you deal with all of these small businesses who may apply for these loans? This is hard stuff, and it becomes even more difficult when so many workers who work for local and state government are not coming into work because of the coronavirus. And one of the issues that we are going to have to focus on big time is the implementation. If anyone thinks just passing this bill, tomorrow everything is going to flow smoothly, you are terribly mistaken. This is a complicated, multifaceted bill, uh, and it is going to take an enormous amount of work to make sure that the money goes where it should go uh, in a cost-effective uh, way. Uh, this bill does a lot of other things as well that I think will help the American economy. So, uh, to conclude, Mr. President, uh, this is not the bill that I would have written. Frankly, I don't think it's the bill that most Americans would have written. I think most Americans are very, very apprehensive that one quarter of this bill is going to go to large corporations with very little accountability. And in a political season, let me make the radical suggestion that we have a President of the United States who may end up targeting some of this money to states that he needs to win. So, uh, this bill has some good things and has some issues of real concern, but one thing we must not do is to punish low-income workers who might get a few bucks more uh, than they previously earned. Thank you very much, Mr. President. And that was Bernie Sanders in his speech on the Senate floor on the what was known as the Coronavirus Bill 3. That speech uh, was described by Jake Johnson of CommonDreams.org as a fiery speech on the Senate floor ahead of the chamber's passage of the massive coronavirus stimulus bill. That bill did pass the Senate on a vote of 96 to 0. It went on to pass the House and was signed by the President. Greetings and welcome to Bernie 2020. This is an independent podcast on progressive politics, inspired by Bernie Sanders and progressive and radical activism. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, PAC, or political organization. If you want to check out all the back episodes, you can go to Bernie-2020.com. You'll find the back episodes there and you'll find some links to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up is a piece from The New Yorker at newyorker.com. And this is written by Kianga Yamada Taylor. 
The debate over the role of government in addressing income inequality, housing insecurity, debt accumulation, and health care continues, now against the grim backdrop of the raging coronavirus. It is difficult to articulate the speed with which the U.S. and indeed the world has descended into an existential crisis. We are experiencing an unprecedented public health event whose diminution and potential resolution rests with a series of prescriptions, including settlement-in-place orders, that will annihilate the economy. The deadly spread of COVID-19 demands enclosure as a way to starve the searching virus of bodies to inhabit. The consequences of doing so removes workers from the work and consumers from consumption. No economy can operate under these conditions. American life has been suddenly and dramatically upended, and when things are turned upside down, the bottom is brought to the surface and exposed to the light. In 2005, when Hurricane Katrina and its aftermath ravaged the Gulf Coast, it too provided a deeper look into the darkness of U.S. inequality. As the actor Danny Glover said then, quote, When the hurricane struck the Gulf and the floodwaters rose and tore through New Orleans, plunging its remaining population into a carnival of misery, it did not turn the region into a third-world country, as it had been disparagingly implied in the media. It revealed one. It revealed the disaster within the disaster, Grueling poverty rose to the surface like a bruise to our skin. For years, the United States has gotten away with persistently chipping away at its weak welfare state by hiding or demonizing the populations most dependent on it. The poor are relegated as socially dysfunctional and inept, unable to cash in on the riches of American society. There are more than 40 million poor people in the United States, but they almost never merit a mention. While black poverty is presented as exemplary, white poverty is obscured, and Latinos and other brown people's experiences are ignored. As many as four in five Americans say they live paycheck to paycheck, 40% of Americans say that they cannot cover an unexpected $400 emergency expense. This is a virus that will thrive in the intimacy of American poverty. For years now, even in the midst of the economic recovery from the 2008 financial crisis, rising rents and stagnant salaries and wages have forced millions of families to improvise housing. Nearly 4 million households live in overcrowded homes. This is a cruel irony of the San Francisco Bay Area's shelter-in-place mandate. The region is at the epicenter of the U.S. housing crisis, as exemplified by its growing unsheltered homeless population. How do you practice social isolation without privacy or personal space? There are the crowded public offices that poor people congregate in to navigate access to services and income. There are the emergency rooms that function as primary health care providers, not to mention the county jails and state prisons.
Economic inequality is exacerbated by racial injustice, both held in place by a threadbare social safety net. Black and brown populations are particularly vulnerable to infection because poverty is a fount of underlying conditions, such as diabetes, hypertension, pulmonary disease, and heart disease, that make it more likely that the virus will be deadly. They are also more vulnerable because greater rates of poverty and underemployment have hindered access to health care. In Milwaukee, the most segregated city in the U.S., where black unemployment is four times the rate of white unemployment, the majority of diagnosed coronavirus cases are middle-aged black men. And as anyone who has ever had to wonder how they will make their rent payment knows, the stress of economic uncertainty is corrosive, eating into the capability of the immune system. But the danger of contracting the coronavirus will hardly be the problem of the poor and working class alone. Those who, because of poverty and insecurity, are most vulnerable to infection, also have disproportionate contact with the broader public through their low-wage retail and service work. Consider the plight of the home health care worker. Millions of such workers attend to a largely elderly and homebound population for meager hourly wages and often without health insurance. In 2018, home health care workers, 87% of whom are women and 60% of whom are black or Latino, made an average of about $11.50 an hour. These workers are the sinews of our society. They must work to ensure that our society continues to function, even as that work poses potential threats to their clients and the general public. Their insecurity, combined with the failure of meaningful action by the federal government, will make the suppression of the virus nearly impossible. Thus far, the Trump administration has predictably bungled the response to the coronavirus, but the Democratic Party's response has been hampered by its shared hostility to unleashing the power of the state through the advance of vast universal programs to attend to an unprecedented developing catastrophe. About half of American workers receive health insurance through their employer. As job losses mount, Millions of workers will lose their insurance while the public health crisis surges. In the last Democratic debate, former Vice President Joe Biden insisted that the U.S. doesn't need single-payer health care because the severity of the coronavirus outbreak in Italy proved that it doesn't work. Strangely, he simultaneously insisted that all testing and treatment of the virus should be free because we are in a crisis. This insistence that health care should only be free in an emergency reveals a profound ignorance about the ways that preventive medicine can mitigate the harshest effects of an acute infection. By mid-February, a Chinese government study of that country's coronavirus-related deaths found that those with pre-existing conditions accounted for at least a third of all COVID-19 fatalities. 
Dismissing the necessity of universal health care also shows an obliviousness to the power of medical expenses to alter the course of one's life. Two-thirds of Americans who file for bankruptcy say that medical debt or losing work while they were sick contributed to their need to do so. The costs of medical treatment become a reason for postponing visits to the doctor. A 2018 poll found that 44% of Americans delayed seeing a doctor due to its cost. Already, half of Americans polled have said that they worry about the costs of the testing and treatment of COVID-19. In a situation like the one we are in, it becomes easy to see the ways that encumbered access to health care exacerbates a public health breakdown. NBA players, celebrities, and the wealthy have access to the coronavirus test, but attending nurses and frontline health care workers, community health centers, and public hospitals do not. Health care inequalities are problems that have been left unattended, creating so many small, imperceptible fractures that in the midst of a full-scale crisis, the structure is collapsing, shattering under its own weight. The case has never been clearer for a transition to Medicare for All, but its achievement clashes with the Democratic Party's decades-long hostility to funding the social welfare state. At the heart of this resistance is a pernicious glorification of, quote, personal responsibility, through which success or failure in life is seen as an expression of personal fortitude or personal laxity. The American dream, we are told, is anchored in the promise of unfettered social mobility, a destiny driven by self-determination and perseverance. This ingrained thinking evades the fact that it was the New Deal in the 1930s and the GI Bill in the 1940s that through a combination of federal work programs, subsidies, and government-backed guarantees created a middle-class lifestyle for millions of white Americans. In the 1960s, as a result of prolonged black protest, Lyndon Johnson authored the War on Poverty and other great society programs, which were intended to lessen the impact of decades of racial discrimination in jobs, housing, and education. By 1969, with Richard Nixon at the helm, during an economic downturn that ended what was then the longest economic expansion in American history, the conservatives attacked the notion of the, quote, social contract embedded in all of these programs, claiming that they rewarded laziness and were evidence of special rights for some. When Nixon ran for re-election in 1972, he claimed that his campaign pitted the work ethic against the welfare ethic. This was an attack not only on public aid and subsidized housing, but also on the people using those programs. Republicans successfully tapped into the racial resentments of white suburbanites who decried, quote, their tax dollars going to unruly rioting African Americans. They resented, quote, forced integration, forced busing, and, quote, the bureaucrats, as Nixon derisively called the previous Democratic administrations. 
It is important to understand that this was not demonization for its own sake, or because of some irrational antipathy towards African Americans. This was about keeping the corporate tax rate low and re-establishing the profitability of capital in the aftermath of another, longer economic downturn. It is hard for businesses and their political representatives to counsel ordinary workers to do more with less. It was easier to blame welfare queens, welfare cheats, and an oblique yet black underclass for the end of these, quote, wasteful programs. In 1973, Nixon unceremoniously declared an end to the, quote, urban crisis, the catalyst for much of Johnson's welfare state. This created the pretext for his gutting of the Office of Economic Opportunity, the office that managed the web of anti-poverty programs created by the War on Poverty. The eventual defection of ordinary white voters from the Democratic Party to the Republicans meant that the Democrats soon aped the right's strategy of downplaying the structural roots of inequality while portraying black communities as ultimately responsible for their own hardships. By the end of the 1980s, the Democratic Party was championing, championing law and order politics and harsh racist attacks on welfare entitlements. In a 1988 column for the Post of Newark, Delaware, titled, quote, Welfare System About to Change, then Senator Biden wrote, quote, we are all too familiar with the stories of welfare mothers driving luxury cars and leading lifestyles that mirror the rich and famous. Whether they are exaggerated or not, these stories underlie a broad social concern that the welfare system has broken down, that it only parcels out welfare checks and does nothing to help the poor find productive jobs. This statement was hardly extraordinary. It reflected widespread efforts to transform public perceptions of the Democratic Party. By the early 90s, President Bill Clinton was promising to, quote, end welfare as we know it, which he succeeded in doing by the end of the decade. This is a historical backdrop to the hypocrisy of U.S. government spending priorities today. Bipartisan denunciations of big government do not apply to the obscene amounts spent on the military or the maintenance of the nation's criminal justice system. The U.S., across all levels of government, spends more than $80 billion annually to operate jails and prisons and to maintain probation and parole. The budget for the U.S. Armed Forces topped out at a stunning $738 billion for this year alone. More than the next seven largest military budgets in the world. Meanwhile, social welfare programs from food stamps to Medicaid to subsidized and assisted housing to public schools are forced to provide on the thinnest margin, triaging crises rather than actually pulling people out of poverty. When Bernie Sanders' critics mocked his platform as just a bunch of free stuff, they were drawing on the past 40 years of bipartisan consensus about social welfare benefits and entitlements. 
They have argued instead the competition organized through the market ensures more choices and better quality. In fact, the surreality of market logic was on clear display when on March 13th, Donald Trump held a press conference to discuss the COVID-19 crisis with executives from Walgreens, Target, Walmart, and CVS, and host of laboratory, research, and medical device corporations. There were no social service providers or educators there to discuss the immediate overwhelming needs of the public. And on a side note, one of his recent uh, press conferences on COVID-19 featured the MyPillow guy. The crisis is laying bare the brutality of an, econ- of an economy organized around production for the sake of profit and not human need. The logic that the free market knows best can be seen in the prioritization of affordability in healthcare as millions careen toward economic ruin. It is seen in the ways that states have been thrown into frantic competition with one another for personal protective equipment and ventilators. The equipment goes to whichever state can pay the most. It can be seen in the still criminally slow and inefficient and inconsistent testing for the virus. It is found in the multi-billion dollar bailout of the airline industry, alongside nickel and dime means tests to determine which people might be eligible to receive ridiculously inadequate public assistance. The argument for resuming a viable social welfare state is about not only attending to the immediate needs of tens of millions of people, but also re-establishing social connectivity, collective responsibility, and a sense of common purpose, if not common wealth. In an unrelenting and unemotional way, COVID-19 is demonstrating the vastness of our human connection and mutuality. Our collectivity must be borne out in public policies that repair the friable welfare infrastructure that threatens to collapse beneath our social weight. A society that allows hundreds of thousands of home health care workers to labor without health insurance, that keeps school buildings open so that black and brown children can eat and be sheltered, that allows millionaires to stow their wealth in empty apartments, while homeless families navigate the streets, that threatens eviction and loan defaults, while hundreds of millions are mandated to stay inside to suppress the virus, is bewilderling in its incoherence and inhumanity. Naomi Klein has written about how the political class has used social catastrophes to create policies that allow for private plunder, She calls it, quote, disaster capitalism, or the shock doctrine. But she has also written that in each of these moments, there are also opportunities for ordinary people to transform their conditions in ways that benefit humanity. The class-driven hierarchy of our society will encourage the spread of this virus unless dramatic and previously unthinkable solutions are immediately put on the table. As Sanders has counseled, we must think in unprecedented ways. 
This includes universal health care, an indefinite moratorium on evictions and foreclosures, the cancellation of student loan debt, a universal basic income, and the reversal of all cuts to food stamps. These are the basic measures that can staunch the immediate crisis of deprivation, of millions of layoffs, and millions more to come. The Sanders campaign was an entry point to this discussion. It has shown public appetite, even desire, for vast spending and new programs. These desires did not translate into votes because they seemed like a risky endeavor when the consequence was four more years of Trump. But the mushrooming crisis of COVID-19 is changing the calculus. As federal officials announce new trillion-dollar aid packages daily, we can never go back to banal discussions of, quote, how will we pay for it? How can we not? Now is a moment to remake our society anew. And this next piece is published at vermontbiz.com. Com. Senator Bernie Sanders, Representative Ayanna Presley, Senator Elizabeth Warren, and Representative Danny Davis led 165 lawmakers in calling on House and Senate leadership to dramatically increase long-term funding for community health centers, CHCs, in the third coronavirus legislative package being drafted by Congress to address the immediate economic and public health emergency needs caused by the pandemic. Quote, Given the severity of the COVID-19 outbreak, the members of Congress write, CHCs should receive the highest levels of funding consistent with or surpassing those outlined in the Community Health Center and Primary Care Workforce Expansion Act. That legislation, sponsored by Sanders and Representative Jim Clyburn, provides CHCs with 10% annual funding increases over five years, nearly $7 billion more than flat funding proposals being considered, thereby expanding care to 10 million more Americans by comparison. Community health centers are at the front lines of this crisis, the members of Congress note, providing medical care and testing for over 29 million low-income people. It is of utmost importance that CHCs receive the long-term and robust resources necessary to meet the needs of our nation's most vulnerable communities, especially as they work to test and care for patients during this unprecedented public health crisis. CHCs, a network of 1,400 facilities in all 50 states and U.S. territories, provide medical, dental, and mental health care, substance abuse treatment, and low-cost prescription drugs for 29 million people. Their patients disproportionately include communities of color, with African Americans making up more than one in five CHC patients, the members of Congress added. In addition to calling for the 10% annual increases to community health centers in the third COVID-19 response package, the lawmakers stressed the need to assist medical professionals to tackle the pandemic, calling for increased funding for the National Health Service Corps and the Teaching Health Center Graduate Medical Education Program, 
which provides scholarships and loan repayment to 10,000 clinicians and trains residents in community-based ambulatory patient care centers. Next up is a piece published at commondreams.org, written by Jake Johnson. After Senator Bernie Sanders and other progressive lawmakers last week called on the Trump administration to end its economic warfare against Iran amid the coronavirus pandemic, 2020 presidential candidate Joe Biden on Sunday refused to commit to even temporarily lifting sanctions on Iran that are severely restricting the country's access to essential medical supplies. Quote, I don't have enough information about the situation in Iran right now, said Biden, the former vice president under the Obama administration, which negotiated the Iran nuclear accord that President Donald Trump scrapped in 2018. Quote, There's a lot of speculation from my foreign policy team that they're in real trouble and they're lying, said Biden. But I would need more information to make that judgment. I don't have the national security information available. The dire situation in Iran has been international news for weeks. The public outcry over U.S. sanctions has been coming from human rights groups as well as Biden's fellow Democrats. Biden's remarks on Sunday came a week after more than a dozen members of Congress, including Sanders, sent letters to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, demanding that the White House immediately lift sanctions on Iran as the nation attempts to combat one of the largest coronavirus outbreaks in the world. Quote, Rather than continue to pile on sanctions in the Iranian people's hour of need, we urge you to substantially suspend sanctions on Iran in a humanitarian gesture, gesture to the Iranian people to better enable them to fight the virus, reads a letter signed by Sanders, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Representative Ilhan Omar, and six other members of Congress. The letter was sent days after Pompeo announced that the Trump administration is imposing more sanctions on Iran in an effort to, quote, deprive the regime of critical income from its petrochemical industry and further Iran's economic and diplomatic isolation. The U.S. reimposed sweeping sanctions on Iran in 2018 after Trump violated the Iran nuclear deal, effectively killing a signature foreign policy achievement of the Obama administration. On the campaign trail, Biden has condemned Trump's decision to withdraw from the agreement and vowed to return to the negotiating table with Iran if elected president. The Washington Post reported Sunday that U.S. sanctions against Iran, where the coronavirus has officially infected more than 41,000 people and killed nearly 2,800, quote, have limited Tehran's ability to finance and purchase essential items from abroad, including drugs, as well as the raw materials and equipment needed to manufacture medicines domestically. And those sanctions are on the oil industry, the banking industry, the shipping and transportation industry, and not only those industries uh, in Iran itself, but also on anyone 
caught doing any business with Iran. So that includes uh, Chinese shipping and transportation companies and banks and others around the world that the U.S. administration, the Trump administration, has singled out to impose sanctions upon. That cuts off a, a serious route for Iran to earn money and to use that money to buy the medicines and medical devices that it needs. There are some exceptions in those sanctions for medicines and medical devices, but those often need special exception status. Next up is a piece by Paul Blessed, published at discourse.blog. Given everything that's happening right now, it's hard to believe that there's still a presidential campaign going on. But there is, and because everyone's locked inside and there's no campaigning and no rallies, it's now operating almost entirely on Twitter. On Tuesday, Twitter's main character, at least for liberal political commentators and consultants, was Brianna Joy Gray, Bernie Sanders' campaign press secretary and a former writer for The Intercept and Current Affairs. Since the coronavirus hit America, the Sanders campaign and its supporters have been hammering the point that Medicare for All could be the cure for millions of people losing their health insurance when they get fired in a pandemic-fueled recession and are facing the cost of testing and treatment. Could also fill the empty space where federal coordination is supposed to be, which has left states and FEMA trying to outbid each other on ventilators and healthcare workers begging for masks, while the Trump administration allows American companies to ship millions of them overseas. Democratic frontrunner and probable nominee Joe Biden continues to pretend that Medicare for All advocates are arguing that a single-payer system could stop the virus itself, and thus continues to oppose Medicare for All in favor of his own plan that would, by the campaign's own admission, leave millions uninsured. But very quickly for Biden and others, the mainstream Democratic line has quickly become that no one should have to pay for testing or treatment for coronavirus. Medicare for all who have this one illness. Senator Kamala Harris, the former presidential candidate and Biden's surrogate, has co-sponsored Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan, and then offered her own plan, which was also called Medicare for All, which fell flat with just about everyone for one reason or another. Since then, Harris has endorsed Biden, who does not believe health care is a human right. On Monday night, Harris once again reiterated the point that coronavirus testing and treatments should be free. And Gray, in a quote tweet, responded by asking why cancer and diabetes patients shouldn't be offered the same protections. The liberal Twitter faves lost their shit almost immediately, with the ostensible reason being that Harris's own mother lost her battle with cancer. Bakari Sellers, a former South Carolina state legislator who lost his only statewide run for office by 17 points and then became a political commentator, called Gray, quote, toxic, and later implied that she'd be blacklisted from working on campaigns in the future. 
The outrage was backed up by prominent Democrats in the media, campaign staffers, politico dweebs, and pundits alike. The verdicts ranged from, quote, This is why Bernie Sanders is losing, to, quote, You'll never work in this town again. Consider me skeptical that a press secretary's tweets are why Sanders is losing. Considering the Biden team now includes someone who did pro bono PR work for Harvey Weinstein, and that it also rewarded the black voters who overwhelmingly support him by welcoming Michael Stop and Frisk Bloomberg to the team. What people who've made a career out of being cited by Axios as, quote, sources familiar with his thinking, take as carelessness is exactly what the most diehard Sanders supporters and people disillusioned with the system in general appreciate about people like Gray and David Serrata. They don't seem to operate with one eye on the next job. Lost in all of the concern trolling about Gray's future career trajectory, though, is that her real crime was putting in plain words what the consequences of not making testing and treatment free for illnesses beyond the coronavirus are. The answer to Gray's question from Harris and the people who support her because of her policies, given her own prior support of Medicare for All, should be a resounding, quote, No, it's not okay to die from cancer and diabetes if you're poor. The problem is what comes after, an admission that the only way to ensure that doesn't happen is to have a healthcare system that looks decidedly more like Bernie Sanders' vision than Joe Biden's. This is not just some abstract policy debate. We live in a country where making the choice to stay alive, if you're lucky enough to be able to make that choice, routinely drives people into bankruptcy and sometimes into the decision to not live anymore. A lot of liberals and Democrats in general seem to think that pointing this out is a cudgel, which takes a simple disagreement out of bounds, even as Democrats and people on the left broadly agree that the decisions made and positions taken by the Trump administration and congressional Republicans are life and death ones. The truth is that the reality of healthcare in this country should make everyone uncomfortable. On top of the horrible personal experiences most of us have with the healthcare system and all that comes with it, we're supposed to just accept that there's a baseline of people who will needlessly die every year because the politics are too hard. And on top of being expected to accept this, we're supposed to do so without a hint of anger or frustration. Fuck that. One other thing that this conversation illustrates is just how unwilling many in the Institutional Democratic Party are to actually engage in the healthcare conversation again for the third time in 25 years. The lesson these Democrats seem to have taken from the Hillary care and Obamacare fights is that it was a waste of political capital with no thanks at the other end. Just a decade of Republican dominance in state and court-level rejections of all of the pieces that were supposed to support the system, both the good, the Medicaid expansion, and the bad, the individual mandate. 
So telling these Democrats what happens when people don't have health insurance generally doesn't have the same effect as showing them the reality of, say, gun violence. The attitude seems to be, been there, done that. Joe Biden is an avatar for this kind of Democrat. By all available accounts, he was not a supporter of Hillary Care, and he was an early opponent of Barack Obama spending all of his political capital on health care. Biden spent the bulk of his career in the Senate looking for areas of agreement with the Republican Party and achieving their shared goals, not fulfilling the progressive ideal of what America should look like or even furthering the goals of the Democratic platform. And if we've learned anything, it's that there are zero shared goals between the two parties when it comes to health care. Bernie Sanders, on the other hand, almost single-handedly dragged the prospect of further government expansion into health care back into the limelight, which has helped make not only Medicare for All, but the public option widely popular with the Democratic electorate, to the point where every other major candidate in the race had to rush to adopt their own proposals to expand the role of government in the health care system. As much flack as Sanders gets for not being a registered Democrat and for his quote-unquote divisiveness, his presence as a national political figure, who kind of, sort of, has a chance to be president, is the only time many of the people who constitute his base, young voters, have to the Democratic Party at all. So therefore, it might be the only thing keeping the health care debate from escalating into a deep schism in the Democratic electorate, especially if Donald Trump is re-elected in November, or if Biden wins and decides a public option would be too hard and unrewarding. And if either of those things happen, the uncomfortability, the uncomfortably frank tweets of campaign staffers will be the least of the Democrats' worries. And finally, for this episode, is a piece published at popularresistance.org. This is written by Max Hyven and was also originally published at roarmag.org. Today, new forms of solidarity, mutual aid, and common struggle are emerging in the pandemic. How will they shape tomorrow's struggles? for a post-capitalist world. The arrival of the COVID-19 pandemic in early 2020, unfolding around the world as I write these words, will likely be remembered as an epical shift. In this extended winter, as borders close, as lockdowns and quarantines multiply, as people succumb and recover, there is a strong sense that when the spring finally arrives, we will awaken in a drastically changed landscape. Those of us now in isolation, in spite of our fear and frustrations, in spite of our grief, for those who have died or may die, for the life we once lived, for the future we once hoped for, there is also a sense we are cocooned, transforming, waiting, dreaming. 
True, terrors stalk the global landscape, notably the way the virus or our countermeasures will endanger those among us whom we as a society have already abandoned or devalued. So many of us are already disposable. So many of us are only learning it now. Too late. Then there is a dangerous blurring of the line between humanitarian and authoritarian measures. There is the geopolitical weaponization of the pandemic. But when the spring comes, as it must, when we emerge from hibernation, it might be a time of profound global struggle against both the drive to, quote, return to normal, the same normal that set the stage for this tragedy, and the, quote, new normal, which might be even worse. Let us prepare as best we can, for we have a world to win. I imagine that struggles to come will be defined by either the desperate drive to, quote, return to normal, or a great refusal of that normal. But this is no Manichean melodrama. On the one hand, there will be those who seek to return us to the order of global revenge capitalism, to which we had become accustomed, a nihilistic system of global accumulation that appears to be taking a needless, warrantless vengeance on so many of us, though without any one individual intending any particular malice, and one which breeds the worst kind of revenge politics. Of course, we should expect the demand that we return to the vindictive normal from the beneficiaries of that system, the wealthy, the political elite, who have everything to gain from business as usual. But we should also expect it from millions of those oppressed, exploited, and alienated by that system, whose lives have been reduced to slow death under it. After months of chaos, isolation, and fear, the desire to return to normal, even if normal is an abusive system, may be extremely strong. The stage is set for this desire to be accompanied by a frantic re revanchism. We will want somebody to blame, especially those of us who lose loved ones. Must there be blood, figurative or literal? A baptism by fire so that the old order, which of course created the conditions of austerity and inequality that made this plague so devastating, can be reborn in purified form. Of course, things will never be, quote, normal again. Some of us, the privileged and wealthy, may be afforded the illusion, but this illusion is likely to be carried on the backs of the vast majority who will work harder, longer, and for less, suffer greater risks and fewer rewards. The debts of the pandemic, literal and figurative, will have to be repaid. On the other hand, or maybe at the same time, we can also expect that among the powerful and among the rest of us, there will be calls to reject the quote, return to normal, 
but in order to embrace something even worse. It is likely that the chaos and deaths of the pandemic will be blamed on too much democracy, liberalism, and empathy. Now that states are flexing their muscles and taking full command of society, there will be many who do not want the sleeve to be rolled back down. We may yet see in this crisis the use of repressive force on civilians, as it is already being used on migrants and incarcerated people. And I fear that it will be seen by many as justified, a human sacrifice to feed the gods of fear. In the wake of the pandemic, we can be sure that fascists and reactionaries will seek to mobilize the tropes of racial, national, economic, purity, purification, parasitism, and pollution to impose their long-festering dreams on reality. The vengeful romance of the border, now more politicized than ever, will haunt all of us in the years to come. The new authoritarians, whether they emphasize a totalitarian state or the totalitarian market, or both, will insist that we all recognize we now live, have always lived, in a ruthless, competitive world and must take measures to wall ourselves in and cast out the undesirable. Other times, authoritarianism may come by stealth, cloaked in the rhetoric of science, liberalism, and the common good. Meanwhile, there will almost certainly be efforts by those vastly enriched and empowered in the last decades, notably in the intertwined technology and financial sectors, to leverage their influence and resources, as well as the weakness and disarray of traditional institutions to lead the reorganization of society along neo-technocratic lines. They will continue to generously offer the services of their powerful and integrated surveillance, surveillance, logistics, financial, and data empires to, quote, optimize social and political life. This corporate dystopia can wear a human face, basic income, hypervigilance for new epidemics, personalized medicine. Already they arrive bearing gifts to help us in this emergency, tracking disease vectors, banning disinformation, offering states help with data and population management. Underneath the mask will be the reorganization of society to better conform to the hyper-capitalist meta-algorithm, which though driven by capitalist contradictions, will essentially be neo-feudal for most of us, a world of data and risk management where only a small handful enjoy the benefits. We will be told it is for our own good. Against all these fateful outcomes, there will be those among us who refuse to return to normal or to embrace the, quote, new normal. Those of us who know that, quote, the trouble with normal is it only gets worse. Already in the state of emergency that the crisis has unleashed, we are seeing extraordinary measures emerge that reveal that much of the neoliberal regime's claims to necessity and austerity were transparent lies. The godlike market has fallen again. 
in different places, a variety of measures are being introduced that would have been unimaginable even weeks ago. These have included the suspension of rents and mortgages, the free provision of public transit, the deployment of basic incomes, a hiatus in debt payments, the commandeering of privatized hospitals and other once public infrastructure for the public good, the liberation of incarcerated people, and governments compelling private industries to reorient production to common needs. We hear news of significant numbers of people refusing to work, taking wildcat labor action, and demanding their right to live in radical ways. In some places, the underhoused are seizing vacant homes. We are discovering against the upside-down capitalist value paradigm, which has enriched the few at the expense of the many, whose labor is truly valuable. Care, service, and frontline public sector workers. There has been a proliferation of grassroots radical demands for policies of care and solidarity, not only as emergency measures, but in perpetuity. Right-wing and capitalist think tanks are panicking, fearful that half a century of careful ideological work to convince us, convince us of the necessity of neoliberalism, the transformation of our very souls, will be dispelled in the coming weeks and months. The sweet taste of freedom, real, interdependent freedom, not the lonely freedom of the market lingers on the palate like a long-forgotten memory, but quickly turns bitter when its nectar is withdrawn. If we do not defend these material and spiritual gains, capitalism will come for its revenge. Meanwhile, the quarantined and semi-isolated are discovering, using digital tools, new ways to mobilize to provide care and mutual aid to those in our communities in need. We are slowly recovering our lost powers of life in common, hidden in plain sight, our secret inheritance. We are learning again to become a cooperative species, shedding the claustrophobic skin of Homo economicus. In the suspension of capitalist order of competition, distrust, and endless pointless hustle, our ingenuity and compassion are resurfacing like the birds to the smog-free sky. When the spring arrives, the struggle will be to preserve, enhance, network, and organize this ingenuity and compassion, to demand no return to normal and no new normal. Around the world, there has, over the past few years, been an unprecedented level of mobilization and organization of movements against revenge capitalism. Sometimes around electoral candidates, for example, Corbyn in the UK, Sanders in the US, but also around grassroots campaigns, strikes against necro-neoliberalism in France, anti-authoritarianism in Hong Kong, anti-corruption in Lebanon and Iraq, anti-austerity in Chile, feminism in Mexico, struggles against gentrification and urban cleansing in cities around the world, migrant solidarity in Europe, indigenous struggles in Canada, the climate struggle, everywhere. 
These pre-2020 struggles, important in their own right, will, I think, be remembered as a training grounds for a generation to whom now falls the burden of one of those turning points of history. We have learned how to bring a capitalist economy to its knees through nonviolent protest in the face of overwhelming technological augmented oppression. We are learning how to become ungovernable by either states or markets. Equally important, we have learned new ways to care for one another without waiting for the state or for authorities. We are rediscovering the power of mutual aid and solidarity. We are learning how to communicate and cooperate anew. We have learned how to organize and to respond quickly, how to make collective decisions, and to take responsibility for our fate. Like the heroes of all good epics, we are not ready. Our training was not completed. Yet fate will not wait. Like all true heroes, we must make do with what we have. One another and nothing else. As the world closes its eyes for this strange, dreamlike quarantine, save, of course, for those frontline health service and care workers who, in the service of humanity, cannot rest, or those who have no safe place to dream, we must make ready for the waking. We are on the cusp of a great refusal of a return to normal, and of a new normal, a vengeful normalcy that brought us this catastrophe and that will only lead to more catastrophe. In the weeks to come, it will be time to mourn and to dream, to prepare, to learn, and to connect as best we can. When the isolation is over, we will awaken to a world where competing regimes of vindictive normalization will be at war with one another, a time of profound danger and opportunity. It will be a time to rise and to look one another in the eye. And that will wrap up this episode of Bernie 2020. Remember, you can find all the back episodes at Bernie-2020.com. You can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2020. Here is Bruce Coburn with the song, The Trouble with Normal. Thanks for listening. the frontier and strikes for higher wage planet lurches to the right as ideologies engage suddenly it's repression moratorium on rights what did they think the politics of panic would invite person in the street shrugs security comes first but the trouble with normal is it always gets worse Keep it on his knees. The 
their single crop starvation plants put sugar in your tea And the local third world's kept on reservations you don't see It'll all go back to normal if we put our nation first But the trouble with normal is it always gets worse Masks dancing while the shells burst The trouble with normal is it always gets worse 